Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. And I'm Aaron. And this is a podcast where we read through the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington. You can find our plan there. We also have the plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you're jumping in for the first time today, we are on day 323. Yes, we're getting there to How the exciting. end of the year. It's so crazy to think about uh, and keep sending us those questions. We appreciate the question backlog that we have so we can take time as much as we can week over week to answer each and every one of those questions. There's three ways to send us those questions. One is an email. The email address is info at grove.church. Make sure to put in the subject line a podcast question, or you can direct messages to the Grove Church and social media on Facebook or Instagram. The handle there is the church, Grove CH. Uh, so you can send us those questions. Well, this week we are in a, we're in a lot of epistles. <laughs> That's kind yep. of, we're in a little bit of Acts and a lot of letters of Paul. Yep. So we're going to be I mean, talking to about- be fair, only two letters of Paul, but they're two massive letters. That's fair. That's what they are. We'll get to what what Aaron's is. I almost spoiled it right there. Oh, we're, 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 we'll get to Aaron's here in a second. Uh, we'll be, I'll be finishing up. I guess not finishing up because you're doing I the finish last. up Corinthians. That's true. I'm in first Corinthians. I'm doing the chapters. The second letter. Yeah. The, the Corinthians. First. Oh yeah. Well. The second bro. We talked about this last week. Yeah. Here's the deal. Do you not listen to me when I talk? We begin by we begin this week by launching back into Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, or his second letter, if you want to be pedantic about it. So, and as as a reminder, if you or accurate, <laughs> as a reminder, uh, the reason we're saying that is because it seems like what happened is that Paul wrote four letters to the Corinthians, and he writes a letter that's not considered scripture, and we don't have anymore. And then he writes 1 Corinthians, and so he kind of references a little bit about that letter, and then he writes another letter that we don't have, and then writes 2 Corinthians and, mess- and uh, references that letter a little bit as well. That's all theory. It just seems like – it's a pretty good theory. I think that is probably what happened, but just so you know, that's that's what we're talking about. So First and Second Corinthians are the two scriptural letters that we have to the church at Corinth, and then theoretically there's two others as well. Uh, and so – also, as a reminder, last week we left off with Paul telling the church in Corinth to chill, basically. And that's what the a huge tone of the letter is, just essentially Paul being dad and telling him to back off. Uh, and the thing he was talking about last week is the fighting over which teacher they like the best. So some of them are like, I like Apollos, I like Paul, I like all, you know, all these different people. And Paul's just like, guys, gospel, just hang out, it's fine. So in chapter four, which is where we're starting off today, Paul continues by describing the ministry of the apostles and saying that they will be held accountable by God and not human courts. So in other words, when people are going after Paul, he's like, listen, I don't really care what you think. I care what God thinks about me, which is a good, you know, that's that's a good way to think of it, I suppose. I don't, not I suppose, that's a good way to think about it. And then I also like how he reminds them of his tone in the letter. So this is starting in verse 14. He says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. So again, there's the dad energy coming from Paul. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then to be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk. Sorry, I will, and I will find I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with the spirit of 
gentleness. So Paul's kind of just laying out, listen, you guys like my spiritual kids. You've gone a little bit of astray. We're going to correct that. And he also just reminds them like, guys, I, sh- I showed you how to live out the gospel, which is a great standard for uh, us as pastors to think about as well. Is like, can, can we say to people, imitate me and, and, and you'll be doing well. So I think that's like, that's a nice convicting thought as well. But that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, I'm showing you how to live out the gospel, live out the gospel. After this, Paul brings up the fact that he's not afraid to, you know, just continue to admonish them. Uh, and he brings up the apparent rampant sexual immorality that was happening at the church of Corinth. And there's a few things that come up where you're just like, oh my gosh, guys, you need to calm down with this. Uh, and he says that this is this is the type of sexual immorality that's not even tolerated by the pagans. Or in other words, it's not that everyone's doing it and then as Christians, we have a higher standard and we're, and we're saying, no, this is not the way it should be. He's saying even the people outside of the church are like, hey, that's a little bit too far. So the, the big one that is kind of famous is there's a man who is having an affair with his stepmother. Specifically, Paul says his father's wife, but I think if it was his actual biological mother, that would have been called out by Paul ex- explicitly. So it seems like stepmother is probably what's going on here. Uh, and Paul calls for immediate church discipline. Dis- dis- church discipline in that moment. He tells him to remove him from fellowship. Uh, And I will note, because this comes up a few times in Paul's letters where he tells them to cast people out, uh, the idea here is not a permanent shunning forever. The idea is that this would be a wake-up call to repentance. And if the person repents of their sin, they could they would be welcomed back into the church. Uh, Paul explicitly talks about that type of church discipline in a few other places. So I I was just saying that because sometimes we read if you if anyone among you is doing this, cast them out. That's not exactly saying like excommunicate them forever from the church. Uh, Paul then tells the church that he's not concerned with judging the sin of the outside world, but rather within the church. Uh, and so essentially his idea here is like, yeah, the pagans who don't worship Christ, of course they're sinning. That's kind of what people who don't worship Christ do. I'm not concerned about that. I'm concerned about the sin I see within the church in this moment. And a major reason for this is the reputation of a church, which is kind of an underexplored theme of Paul. In a lot of Paul's letters, he is very concerned with how the church is viewed by the outside world. And so think about, and this is in verses 11 through 13, he says this, but I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those inside the church whom you are to judge. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person among you. And so again, when you have people who are in this kind of unrepentant sin mode, un- unrepentant sin, and they're just they're they're publicly doing these things. They have this reputation. Paul is saying, don't let them be high ups in the church. Like, don't associate with them because that that ruins the that ruins the reputation of the church itself. Because why would someone look at why would someone look at a gathering of people where their none of their lives have changed? It's all exactly the same. Paul would say, no, disassociate with them because it's hurting the message of the gospel. And again, the idea here is not a permanent, you can never come back. The idea is you lead them into repentance. Uh, this leads us into chapter six, where Paul tells the church that it is better for them to be defrauded than to damage the reputation of the church by solving things in secular courts. Uh, Aaron and I talked about this a little bit last year. I don't. I, I, I should start writing down what episodes things are, but I think we had a question about this come up. Uh, but essentially, the idea here is Paul is saying when there's legal troubles that come up within the church, 
why are you guys going to secular courts and solving these things? Solve them within the church, keep it all in-house so it's not so you don't have this reputation of again, people who are outside of the church, they're looking at all these Christians who are saying our lives have been changed by Christ. We love we love each other. Uh we we want to show the love of Christ to the world and at the same time they're suing each other all the time. They're practicing all these unrepentant sins. Paul is saying, of course people are looking at the church and they're saying, why would I want to be a part of that? Nothing's changed about their lives. Uh, we then get a long list of sins. So Paul goes through and talks about the the people who will not uh, the people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. But we miss it. I think sometimes we quote this passage and we miss the important point at the end as well. So this is First Corinthians chapter six verses nine through eleven, and he says. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So I think sometimes we we list off the sin in different in different contexts, but we don't, we leave off the last verse where Paul is saying, and that's what a lot of you were, but you've been washed by the blood. So th- this isn't saying, this isn't Paul saying, if you commit any of these sins, you're you're not allowed to enter into heaven. Your salvation can't happen. What Paul is saying is it, it's people who are unrep- in living in unrepentant sin and are not believers in Christ. When we believe in Christ, when we have the Holy Spirit, we know that our sins have been washed away. We know that we've been forgiven. So an important point to keep in there, because I think sometimes we we quote that a little bit about out of context. Uh, Paul then returns to the theme of sexual immorality, making the point that when we sin in this way, we sin against our own bodies as well. And he cites prostitution specifically as a sin that the church seemed to be engaged in. Uh, this could be just kind of your standard prostitution that we think about that exists today, right? Like just what we think of when we think of what we think of when we hear the word prostitution. It could also be uh, ways of worshiping some of the false gods in the city of Corinth. Is some I I believe it's Aphrodite. That would make sense because she's the the Greek god of love, but or goddess of love, but. Some of the, I think Dionysus might have been another one as well. Anyway, sorry, listeners. Uh, Some of the Greek gods, the cults of the gods, the way that you would worship them is by sleeping with temple prostitutes as well. So Paul could be talking about either of these things. He could be talking about both of those things as well. Uh, Let me see here. He ends this section by reading, (coughs) do you mind, Aaron? I covered my mouth. That's true. Uh, He ends this section by reading the church that they were bought, reminding, sorry, by reminding the church that they were bought for a price and that they should seek to glorify God with their bodies. So in other words, the price of your salvation is high. Seek to glorify God with everything that you do and the way that we use our bodies. And in particular with this one, it's the the sexually immoral ways that the church, that the people of the church of Corinth had been using their bodies for. Paul's telling, you know, stop it. In chapter seven, Paul begins to address marriage. Uh, apparently some in the church had been saying that there should be no sex going on, full stop, uh, which is funny because that's a wide pendulum swing because <laughs> the, the, like the, the paragraph before is like enough with the prostitutes, everybody. And you can kind of imagine the other half of the church being like, yeah, enough with all of that. And he goes, and, and you, that is not what I said as far as like the absolutely no sex at all. Uh, and so apparently some in the church had been preaching this. Paul does not agree, uh, but rather he encourages men and women to marry and to not deny each other within marriage. Uh, and he gives a caveat of, except maybe for a short time to devote themselves to prayer. But even then he says, not and not don't make that super long and always uh, rejoin back together. 
Uh, Paul, however, does say that he wishes everyone could be single like him and sorry, by implication, celibate as well. So Paul's not saying be single and sleep around. He's saying be single and celibate. Uh, but if you, but only if you have the self-control, if you don't have the self-control to do that, then it is better to be married. He ends this section with a reminder of the seriousness of marriage and that divorce should be off the table. He makes an exception for the for abandonment by an unbelieving spouse, but specifies that if your spouse is willing to stay married, you should, hoping to win them to Christ in the process. So essentially, he's he's carving out an exception for, and it seems like it mostly it it, it seemed to have mostly happened with women who joined the church, where they would become believers and then their husbands would say like I want nothing to do with this and they would leave. Paul saying okay like. Your, your marriage has ended. You are free to remarry. He doesn't want to have people trapped in that kind of a situation. But he does specify that if you come to Christ and your spouse doesn't believe, that's not an excuse to end a marriage. And and he, he used it. I think this is a beautiful thing as well. He talks about how we should be wanting to win our spouse to Christ through our conduct. And so it, it's almost like your, your, your spouse in that situation becomes kind of a mission field. And do we show the unbelieving spouse the, the love of Christ every day. So I, I think that's a really beautiful call from Paul there. Uh, and then let me see here, continuing on, Paul encourages people to stay as they were when they came to Christ, which is an interesting passage. So he says, this is in chapter seven, verses 12 through 24, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcised circumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let them remain with God." And so, yeah, really interesting there. Paul's saying, I mean, the the obvious one would be when he's talking about circumcision versus uncircumcision, he's saying Jewish believers, like, don't, don't be ashamed of the fact that you are culturally Jewish, that you've been circumcised. Don't try and cover that up. That's nothing to be ashamed about. But he also says to the Gentile believers, don't seek to be like them. It's fine. Like, it doesn't count for anything. Just <laughs> love, love Christ, be Christians. And then the, the idea of Bond servant, slave would be another word. The reason we don't necessarily always translate that word as slave is because the the context of when Paul's using the word here, we we think of slavery as being the institution in the Americas in the 19th, I mean, and, and earlier, but ending in the 19th century as a particularly horrid thing, which which it was. And slavery in the Roman Empire is a little bit different. Not that it's not bad. And even here, Paul says, don't become a bondservant. Don't don't enter into that. And if you can get your freedom, take it. But it was also, it, it, and the, a bondservant might actually even be a better translation because oftentimes in Roman households, slaves could, they would earn wages and you could save up and you could buy your freedom. That was a part of it as well. So Paul is saying, do that, save up, buy your freedom, uh, but don't be super concerned with changing the aspects of your life right now. Worship Christ, be a Christian, and then if you can get your freedom, go for it. That's kind of what Paul is saying there. And we see this later on, you know, spoilers for the letter of Philemon, we're going to see uh, 
Paul apply this idea specifically to Philemon and his runaway slave Onesimus. So that's spoilers for, I don't know when that's coming, but it's coming in a few weeks. I'm it's sure. coming. So it'll be, it's, that's one of my favorite letters of the Old New Testament. It's a good time. Uh, Paul then returns to the idea of wishing that everyone could have the gift of singleness that he has. And when I say gift of singleness, I mean, it, it seems like Paul is, he has the discipline. He has the self-control to just stay single. And he is, because of that, he's extremely effective in ministry because he has no ties, really. He can just kind of keep doing what he's doing. And he wishes that more people could be like that. Uh, he tells them that his own advice in the present time would be to stay single, but that if, uh, but that you do not sin if you marry. So essentially he's saying, hey, with everything going on right now, I would just suggest staying single. But if you marry, that's not sin. Don't worry about it. Uh, he explains that those who marry will have troubles in life and anxiety to those, uh, more anxiety than those who do not marry. And of course, your attention will be divided. You're not able to focus your whole attention on serving God. I think it was, I think it was Mark Gunger did a marriage thing one time, but he was joking about how like, like Bible verses that you never read at weddings. And one of them was this verse in first Corinthians where it just says he who marries will have trouble in life. And that's pretty much it. So you, yeah, we don't, we read other verses from first Corinthians at weddings, pretty much every wedding, but not these ones. Uh, moving to chapter eight, Paul begins to elaborate on some of what was discussed by the Jerusalem council on the eating of food offered to idols. So remember last week we talked about how James, the brother of Christ, oversees this council in Jerusalem. They're wondering, essentially, I, I said it tongue in cheek, but it's true. Is the Holy Spirit allowed to do what the Holy Spirit's been doing? And they end up deciding, okay, clearly the Gentiles are capable of being saved. Clearly, they do not need to be culturally Jewish. Here's just a few basic rules to follow so you don't offend your Jewish brothers. And that, and that's the end of it. So Paul here is elaborating on that. So he's clearly using the decision of the council when he's, when he's saying these things. Uh Essentially, Paul tells them to not overworry about it. So they, he tells them, because one of the commands is don't eat food offered to idols. And he tells them, you don't need to inspect every single piece of meat that you eat. You don't need to ask every single time, hey, was this offered to an idol? He's just saying, eat it. You, it it's free to you. It, it Don't worry about it as far as your conscience goes. If someone tells you this was offered to an idol, then you should refrain. Then you shouldn't eat it. So essentially, he's making clear that this it's not that it's necessarily a sin to eat this food. What he's saying is it's a stumbling block for many believers and you should be considerate in Christ to your fellow believers. And if this is something that's offending their conscience, then absolutely don't partake in it. Chapter nine begins with a possible window into some things that Paul is being accused of. This is always an interesting thing with the letters of Paul because in a bunch of them, he's writing in response to critics and he doesn't always straight up say, this is what I'm being accused of. Here's my answer to it. So you kind of have to read between the lines, but I thought this was really interesting. In 1 Corinthians 9, 3 through 6, he says, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? So kind of interesting. Uh, so Paul is listing off some things that he's being criticized for. The obvious one would be eating and drinking, or in other words, he's, he's, he's not keeping kosher is probably what this is saying. That's obvious. Like, I, I would say like Paul is doing it. Peter's also doing it. The interesting thing here is another criticism seems to be that he's not a, that he's not married, which is kind of an interesting one as well. And this is where we find out, we know Peter's married because Jesus heals his mother-in-law and you don't get a mother-in-law without a wife. Those two things usually go hand in hand. But it is kind of interesting that we find out here that the brothers of Christ, so James and Jude have wives as well. And he says other apostles. So we don't know who they are, but it's not just Peter who has a wife. There's other apostles in that group who do as well. 
And then the last one I think is the most interesting. He says, or is it only Barnabas and I who have the right to refrain from working for a living or who have no right to refrain from working for a living? So the criticism he was getting was that he had a side hustle. So Paul's a tent maker. That's what he does in order to in order to um, to to make a living and to pay his way through his missionary journeys, or at least some of it. And he's getting criticized for it. And we can, I guess you can imagine that the criticism is, hey, devote your time fully to the work of the mission. Don't worry about making tents or all these different things. And Paul's saying, no, it's ridiculous. Like if if the other apostles can have wives that they bring along, and clearly that split their attention. It's like, I can make some tents and to get some extra money and pay my way through this. So yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting criticism because you, you would not have that criticism today. Uh, Paul continues to show that he has the right to do a ton, but that he surrenders many of those rights in order to be as effective in ministry as he can. So the idea here is there's a lot of things I can do and they wouldn't be sin. But if they're stumbling blocks to others, I don't want to do them. I want to make sure I'm not hindering the work of Christ in any way. So, and this is where we get this famous passage from. He says, to the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Uh, So in other words, the idea, the principle here, I would say, if we want to apply it to us today is don't do things that offend other people just for the purpose of offending other people. What? So, and that's lame. I know that doesn't mean never do anything. So for instance, like if someone's offended by the gospel, you know, tough. Offend him like crazy. Yeah. Tough cookies. (laughs) Like you're going to like, you got to, you got to share this. You got to, let's be honest. We all should be offended by the gospel. That's true. Yeah. Well, not should be, but are. Yes. Yes. That's fair. Uh, those things. Yeah. You, you have to stand on truth. You have to stand on the word of God, all those different things. But let's say for instance, um, like if you're, if you're, if you, I don't, I don't think this is, I don't know if this is controversial or not. I don't think the Bible for, for, forbids drinking. I don't think that's a very controversial stance. I think the Bible, what? I think the Bible allows it. I think the Bible's clear about don't get drunk, but the Bible allows 100%. drinking. Um, at the same time, like if you're, if you're talking with a with a Christian brother or sister, or if you're that's a weird way to say it. that's a very church way to say it. But if you're talking with fellow Christians and they are very bothered by drinking, don't just like bust out a beer and start pounding it down. It's saying like, no, if someone's conscious is bothered by it, then abstain because you don't want to have anything in between uh, in between you and Christ. So there's there's we have freedom in Christ, but we should be willing to curb that freedom in order that more people would come to know him. That's what Paul is getting at. So he's saying when he's with Jews, he's going to keep kosher. He's not going to bust out some pork and just be like, hey, look what I can do. You guys do. want some bacon? Yeah, exactly. No, he's going to he's gonna do, observe everything. And then when he's with Gentiles, he's not going to worry about it because that's not a stumbling block for them. So, and I think it's a beautiful thing. Again, Paul's idea is I want the most amount of people to know Christ. And I don't want to put anything in between them and knowing Christ because of what I've done. So cool beans there. Uh, okay, the next chapter is a little bit confusing for me. So I spent a lot of time trying to looking at this and figuring out what to do. So he warns the church against idolatry, and then he jumps over to sexual immorality for a verse, and then he goes back to idolatry. So he goes, don't worship idols, don't be sexually immoral, don't worship idols. It's like, wait, why is, like, what's the through line there? It was kind of interesting. So, and specifically, he cites Numbers 25, which if you remember, when we talked about Numbers 25... Congratulations. Which that's, all of I us mean, do. that's impressive. We'll send you a t-shirt. Um, but 
as a reminder, this is where Israel is located in the still fun to say region of Shittim, and the men of Israel are allowed their desire allowed their desire for the women of Moab to lead them into idolatry and worship Baal. So in other words, the men of Israel they look over at the Moabite women and they're like, wow, these are some good looking women, which I guess in fairness, later on, some Israelites will also fall into that same temptation. But out of that, we get King David. So that's Ruth, everybody. But this is a bad one because they, the they allowed that temptation to lead them to worship Baal. 24,000 of them are killed as a result. And so a couple options with what Paul is saying here. Uh, Paul could be saying that sexual immorality is the idolatry that he's talking about, uh, which I, I don't think that's what's going on. The other two would be one of the ways that Corinth is worshiping idols is through sexual immorality. And this would be like I talked about with the, the, the temple prostitutes of the time. That could be what's happening here. And so in the same way that the men of Israel were – they allowed their lust for the women of Moab to lead them into idolatry, the men of Corinth could allow – or I shouldn't say men. I think it could be both. But the, the, the church of Corinth is allowing their lust uh, to lead them into idolatry of whatever the, the cult god that they were worshiping at the time is. Or Paul could be using, just using the same metaphor as the prophets. And again, what do we almost, I shouldn't say almost every time, because I, I don't know that off the top of my head, but a ton of the time when we hear about idolatry and worshiping false gods, what's the metaphor that God uses and the prophets use? It's adultery. It's breaking a marriage covenant. And so Paul could be saying, because sexual immorality also can very much mean adultery in a lot of the New Testament letters. It's a, it's a catch-all word, but that's usually what it's referring to, at least, or I shouldn't say usually, a lot of the times that's what it's referring to. So that's what Paul could be saying here as well. So any of those three, I think two or three are the options for, for what I would think. If you put a gun to my head, two, I think is probably the one that's going on, but there you go. Yeah, but I think you also got to remember like culturally, Corinth was a very much a party church. Sexual morality yep. was prevalent throughout the Roman world, uh, which would infiltrate cult, uh, Corinth as well. So I think they go hand in hand. I think idolatry and sexual morality are hand in hand. I mean, one leads to the other, the other leads to the other. It's it's kind of, I almost want to say it's like two sides of one coin. Like, mm -hmm. So I could see Paul flipping back and forth because of that, because culturally who he's speaking to is a very pervasive culture. So yeah, that guy's yeah. with his stepmom, you know, come on. Yeah. I mean, but I mean, even go back, even, even go back to modern Roman culture at that time was very sexual. It was very much oh, yeah. immoral in that, in that stance. So it's one of the, it's arguably one of the most prevalent topics of the time, which is rooted in idolatry period because you're worshiping anyways. So, right. So yeah, that's why I think it, you could look at it from two sides of one coin too. So no, that's fair. Uh, and then the, he ends that section essentially with commanding the church to have nothing to do with idol worship. And then the very end of the chapter is a reminder to do everything to the glory of God. Uh, and again, he uses his standard of while many things are permissible, he limits himself to be as effective as he can for ministry and we should do the same. So a lot of things are permissible, but <laughs> how do we curb that in yeah. order to present the gospel as clearly as possible? Uh, we then get to, this is a fun one, a super confusing chapter on head coverings. Uh, so we did... This was one of the first like big questions that we got where I was like, I need to do a lot of research into to figure this out. Oh, I remember. Yep. Yep. So to go over so to go over it quickly, Paul essentially says, when in church, men should not wear head coverings, women should wear head coverings, and it's it, a wife dishonors her husband by not wearing a head covering in church. And then he just kind of moves on. So the the easy question to ask is, okay, wait, what does this mean for us today? Does this mean we need to wear head coverings in church or not wear head coverings? So Yes. Yeah. So a couple things. Um well, I guess the first thing I'll say is, and we've talked about this a little bit before, but sometimes there is a deeper principle in the Bible 
that's not the first thing that's in front of you. And that's what applies to us today. And the easy example for this is in the gospels, Jesus tells his disciples, when you fast, don't make a big deal out of it. Just anoint your heads with oil and go about your day. So back then, one of the ways you prepared prepared for the day was anointing your head with oil. So you would not have looked any different if that's what you're doing. Today, if while we were fasting, we all anointed our heads with oil, we would immediately look different from everybody else. And so we would actually be breaking the underlying principle of what Jesus is saying. Because the principle is, uh, don't draw attention to the fact that you're fasting. So if, if that makes sense, so right, so, so there's, a th- there's a command that's given in that moment, but the underlying principle probably changes what the command would be to different cultures at different times. In the same way, there's a couple different things that are going on here. Um, Number one, we talked about this in that big episode. We don't need to go super deep into it, but back in that culture, medically, uh, medically, the idea was the longer your hair was, the more things sucked up, like it created suction. So, and the, so when, so weird, it is, it is really weird. So I'll, I'll go over it really quick. If you, if you got kids listening, I guess like, you know, skip forward like a minute. But uh, the idea would be that after sex, if a woman had longer hair, then everything would be sucked up and she'd have a better chance of being pregnant. If a man had longer hair, everything would be sucked up and he would have less of a chance of being able to impregnate a woman. So men culturally had shorter hair, women had longer hair. And because that was the idea for women, hair was often considered part of the genitalia. So it was immodest to show hair in many of the cultures at this point. Uh, The other thing is that a woman's head covering was also a symbol of being married. So if you didn't have a head covering and you're walking around, essentially it it would be the equivalent of not having a wedding ring on, right? So you're kind of signaling that you're you're single, not necessarily ready to mingle, I guess, but that's kind of what's going on. So in this chapter, the way that we would apply it today is essentially within church, dress modestly, and that goes for that goes for both sexes, right? Paul's giving commands to both, so we should dress modestly in church. Uh, and the other thing would be like if you have symbols of marriage keep them on. Like it's, it's dishonoring to your spouse to not have those on. So for us, it's wedding rings. That's kind of the main one in our, in our culture. So like I, I should not be going around and like taking off my wedding ring and talking to people. Like I wear it, I wear it proudly because it's a symbol of my marriage in the same way that a head covering back then would have been a symbol of marriage as well. So that's kind of what's going on in that chapter. Super confusing. And weird, but it is what it is. It's but a difference of cultures. It's by, I shouldn't say by far, but it's, it's among the most fascinated I've, I've ever been when I deep dove into a topic for the, for the podcast. Uh, after this, Paul dives into communion. Apparently some of the church had been eating the Lord's supper flippantly and Paul is warning against this. So essentially they're just going in, they would go in hungry and they would just eat a bunch and drink a bunch. And so it wasn't treated as a sacred moment. It was just treated as like, Oh, sweet free food. This is awesome. Uh, and then also people living in just unrepentant sin were going forward. And again, just the idea is like, Oh, free food. This is great. Uh, so Paul's point is if you're hungry, eat at home, which yeah. I love, I love that advice. Cause it's just so practical. And it's funny too, cause it doesn't, most churches today, the way we do communion is you get like a little cracker and a shot of grape juice, essentially, uh, yeah, or wine, or wine if you're one of the cool churches. Uh, but just kidding. So um, that's the way that's the way that it happens. So you wouldn't even think of, yeah. Oh, I don't need to eat breakfast today. It's communion. So that that part doesn't even really factor into a lot of church contexts. Um, but again, it's the idea is the Lord's Supper is something we take seriously. So mm-hmm. when we when we take communion, when we're a part of that. We should be searching our hearts. We should be bringing our sin before God. We should be uh, in, in right standing before God, not living in unrepentant sin. And we also should be treating it with the reverence that it deserves. Yeah. We shouldn't be 
it sh- like it shouldn't just be I'm eating a cracker and drinking some juice. It should be I'm remembering the crucifixion and resurrection of of, of Christ. I guess not resurrection. We're remembering the crucifixion and sacrifice of Christ. We're remembering the new covenant that's yeah. been ushered in. So that's well, I idea. think, and also in in what was happening is what communion is meant to be is a time where the body of Christ com- comes together and reflects on the sacrifice, right? Uh, but what was happening in Corinthians because it was a it was culturally a party city. It became a party. It became this festivity where, yeah. and it actually would separate the the Christian believers from rich and, and poor. And the rich would all sit together and they'd all, because it'd be almost like a potluck where everyone would bring food and it became this big old feast and party where they would, the rich would bring their food and they would all eat their own food and they would, in essence, out keep the poor out from among them. So it was never, it was no longer a unifying act. It was no longer a unifying practice of remembering and reflecting on the the grace and truth of Christ's death and resurrection. And so it became this sideways thing where Paul had to draw back rebuke. It's not about a party. It's not about a feast. It's about coming together as body of Christ as equals. And so he's bringing correction because of culturally what's happening and what they're doing is where it becomes this, it, it became something it was never meant to be. Right. So it, Yeah. It's a reminder that the sacraments are meant to be taken seriously and that we shouldn't engage in them, whether it's communion or baptism or anything else, yeah. right? We shouldn't be engaging in them flippantly. Yeah. So the ordinances are important. It's absolutely. Uh, so then we get to <laughs> we get to uh, chapter thirteen, and this is just uh, oh, sorry, no, I, I skipped a, a spot in my Come notes. Come on, bro. We get to chapter twelve. Yes, this is a long section on spiritual gifts, and by a long section, I mean it's multiple chapters. Yeah. being devoted to this. Uh, he begins by telling them that each person is given some, but not all, of the spiritual gifts. Uh, he compares this to being part of a body and how we should not look with jealousy to those who have other gifts. And we should. Er- and he also tells the church to earnestly desire the higher gifts. And what he means by higher gifts is the gifts that are meant to build up the church. Um, so to kind of recap that, it's saying God is giving... God gives spiritual gifts to everyone. He gives different spiritual gifts to everyone. Uh, we, It's right, it's good to earnestly desire other gifts. Like that's not a bad thing to ask the Lord for spiritual gifts. But at the same time, we shouldn't look with jealousy on people who have gifts that we don't have and maybe we'll never have. And uh, the, the analogy he uses is essentially it'd be like if a foot looked at the hand and was like, well, I'm not a hand, so I'm useless. And then, But if you don't have a foot, that's really important. Like maybe the foot's not the most glorious part of the body, I suppose, but it is one of those things where it Paul just gives the idea of every part of the body is needed for the body to function as effectively as possible. Just like that, every spiritual gift is needed for the church to function as effectively as possible. And so whatever spiritual gifts we walk in, we should not be ashamed of those. And we should be looking to see how can we build up the body of the church with that. Uh, We then get to chapter 13, which I just put, it's too famous not to read. It's like 13 verses. So I'm just going to read it. But it's a really important reminder that Paul puts in the middle of this discourse on spiritual gifts of what's the most important. And it's also the one that we read at weddings that I referenced earlier. So, but we're going to read the whole thing, not just the famous part that gets read at weddings. So Paul says, starting in verse one, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a playing or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and deliver my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, 
endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known." So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So essentially, to, to kind of recap what Paul is saying, he's saying you can, we can walk in all the spiritual gifts that we want, but if we don't love others, it's meaningless. So he talks about like speaking in tongues, the tongues of men and angels. Like if you're doing that, but you hate people, you're just going to sound like, and just imagine how annoying it would be for someone just to bang cymbals next to you while you're trying to like, listen, right? That's, that's what he's saying. It's essentially the same noise there. Uh, if we have prophetic powers, or if you have all these different things, you have faith that can move mountains. Uh, if we are just living completely selflessly with all of our wealth, but if we don't love people, then none of it's going to matter. And I also love the idea that he gets at is, there's going to be a day when the spiritual gifts are pretty much worthless, right? On the other side of eternity, like you're not going to need to prophesy anymore because we're living in the new heaven and the new earth. There's nothing to prophesy about. Uh, tongues aren't going to be important because we're all speaking. We're all speaking the same language. Like there's all these things that all of a sudden healing isn't the gift of healing isn't going to be important. All these different things are no longer going to be important. What is going to be there is love. And so do we love others well? That's what God is calling us to do. And it's not a coincidence that Jesus says, what are the greatest commandments? It's love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So an important reminder for us today. We get into then chapter 14. Uh, Paul tells the people that the gift of tongues is cool, but that prophecy is even better. So because praying in the spirit builds yourself up, but prophecy builds up the whole church. So in other words, and here he's talking about uh, specifically the idea of praying in the spirit, praying in a heavenly language. He's saying that's for you and God. And it's not a bad thing. You should desire it, but uh, it doesn't build up the church the way that other gifts do. Uh, again, the idea is that we should desire gifts to empower us for ministry and to build up the church, not just because they're cool. Uh, Paul then gets into some instructions for orderly worship within the church. So this is kind of interesting, but he says there should not be speaking in tongues publicly within the church unless there's an interpretation available. So he's like, if there's no interpretation, we shouldn't be doing this publicly in the church. Uh, he says to only let two or three prophets speak at a time, and then the church should test what they've said. So he's like, don't just make a line and a bunch of prophets are getting up and saying stuff. Next. Like, yeah, exactly. He's like, listen to a couple. Number 64. 60, do we have 64? Get on up here, Steve. Like whatever. I don't know. If your name is Steve, I'm not talking about you. So that was just a name that came to my head. Uh, but no, he's saying, let a couple go, but then test what they're saying against scripture. Like all, all these things are important to do. Uh, and then we get to, an un there's an, uncom an uncomfortable section to read where Paul says that women should be silent in church. Um, so it's weird because it kind of just comes out of like when I let two or three people uh, speak, Test what they say. Also, women should be silent in church. And he kind of goes along with this. So what we – and this is where it's it's going to be an open-handed issue because it's a little bit difficult to interpret. What I think is going on here is that Paul is limiting the idea of testing the prophecy that's happening within a, within a church setting uh, specifically to men. And he's having women not be a part of that. I think that's what's going on in this moment. Uh, you can't really say that 
it's specifically for this church because it's something going on here because the sentence before it is true. just like in all the churches, this is what we should be doing. Um, so I think that that's what's happening in in that moment. Again, uncomfortable to read. It's one of the things in our culture that we have to rep to, that we have to wrestle through. Um, just like in every culture, yeah. we have every culture ever that's received scripture has had to wrestle through things that are uncomfortable for that culture. And this is one of the ones for us, but I think that's, what's going on here. Again, it's kind of an open-handed issue. Yeah. There's different way to different ways to interpret it though. Well, and I think, I mean, Evan and I were talking about this a little bit before we were recording the podcast this week. And, and my habit in these moments is to read different translations of the same passage because it helps me process the thought more fully. And so I actually read uh, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the New Testament, of First Corinthians specifically in the message. Uh, and one of the things that was talking about, the implication there is uh, what's going on in the church here based upon this tongues issue, this uh, prophet issue, is the church had this disorder in it where it became everybody was speaking and everybody was questioning and everybody was doing everything. And so I think there's a layer to this conversation of, uh, I think Eugene Peterson, the way he puts it is like, wives should should not bring up questions that they can, in essence, ask their husbands at home. Um, and so it is this is this cultural dynamic being played out where it was dysfunction and distraction away from the gospel, away from the purpose of the church meeting. And so I do think there's a layer of the context where Paul is, is saying across all churches, there has to be order. There can't just be chaos. And part of that is making sure we're managing very carefully how the flow of a gathering would go to put into modern day terms as we're right. navigating our current gatherings. We have to have order to it to a degree because we we honor God with that. We don't we keep the gospel centric in that. And when there's dysfunction and, and chaos, it doesn't it doesn't help produce an environment where the gospel can be preached. So I think there's layers to the conversation of trying to restrict or oral conversations and gifts happening in the midst of a gathering rather than one that the oration being gospel centric. And so that's, that's part of the tension I think is existing here too, uh, that I think is really important to understand as well. But, and I would even say like the idea here is, is Paul is not elevating gifts above themselves. Like it's the same spirit who gives the gifts, all of the spiritual gifts that Paul talks about are from, from God created for believers and, and followers of Jesus to be empowered to do the work of the ministry. And so, um, it is important to understand that these are meant to be used in humility, I mean, Acts account of Pentecost when tongues first happened was as the Spirit enabled them. Right. Um, and so I think there's value to understanding this tension, but there is, it can lead to disarray. And unfortunately, we've seen modern churches today uh, in the last 50 years become dysfunctional and become chaotic and become this sideways weird thing that I don't think God ever intended. So that's, Paul is trying to speak to the order and the uh, leadership of the church to produce an environment where the gospel is preached and people can respond. Yeah, I think today we see two kind of weird pendulum swings where on the one hand, it's there are no spiritual gifts today. They all yeah. ceased. We don't walk in that at all. And on the other hand, it's what Paul's talking about here, where it's just complete Everybody gets a gift. They're swinging from the rafters. Yeah, and complete chaos, no mm -hmm. rules. And and again, what Paul is saying here is like, that's that's driving people away <laughs> from, yeah. from, they're going to go to church and be like, what is going on here? Yep. You're going to leave. I'm out. Right? So that's the idea. Deuces. Uh, sorry, one more thing I'll say about this passage as well. I forgot to, I put this in the notes, but I forgot to say it. Um, there's a few different ways to interpret it. I don't think it's correct to interpret it as just straight up the way it sounds. Women shouldn't speak in church uh, because we see elsewhere in the New Testament that women operate in the gift of prophecy. Yep. And that's not said to be wrong or yeah. it's not curbed, right? Yeah. So I don't think the way, I don't think the correct way to interpret this would just be like, 
Women be quiet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there's, you have to figure out, well, what, if that's not what it is, what is Paul specifically yeah. talking about here? Yeah. Well? And even Jesus did it. I mean, and Jesus is when he was walking on the earth, he had women who were leading and, and, and Lydia was a great example, like her household. There was, there's pieces of that. So or maybe that was in the act in book of Acts, but either way, all that to Acts, say, yeah. all that to say, like women have a place in the kingdom and in the church order and leadership and things like that. But this is specific to the disorder that happens. And these are the things that are playing out. So, yeah. Uh, the last chapter I'm doing today is chapter 15. And this is kind of an interesting one because I don't, it's not really a huge struggle, I think, for the church no. today. But he's talking about, he's essentially giving an apologetic and, sorry, apologetic means a defense of uh, the resurrection of Christ and therefore our own resurrections one day. Uh, so there seems to be a large contingent that doubts that bodily, that eighth, either A, the bodily resurrection of Jesus happened and that therefore we will be bodily resurrected when we uh, arrive at the new heavens and new earth. So you saw this in Jesus' ministry. It was the Sadducees who were kind of the big group here who were saying there is no resurrection from the dead. The Pharisees had no problem with that, but they had their own problems with Jesus. Uh, this seems to be pointing to early Gnosticism and if you don't know what that is, that's totally fine because it's not something you would know unless you really looked into it. But one of the first big heresies of the early church, and this was particularly a problem in Greek in Greek areas of Greek culture, is this idea of Gnosticism and more specifically the idea that Jesus was fully spiritual but not a man. He was not physical. And the and and the, a lot of this is because of early Greek philosophy. So if you read Plato, right, a lot of it is the spiritual form of a thing is the greatest form of the thing. And so, uh, the best thing that we can do is shed our physical forms and arrive at a spiritual form. And so, for these Greeks who came to believe, it did not click with them that the physical form is not bad. And so they they would begin to say like, well, well, it says resurrection. That doesn't mean like, you know, his body. That means, no, he he attained spiritual form. That's what happened. Yeah. And when we go to heaven, we just attain spiritual form. There's nothing physically going on there. And so Paul is saying, no, that's, that's not true. Uh, and then this becomes a problem. It becomes a problem for like a lot of the early church. You're going to have Gnosticism is the one that's like Jesus is fully spiritual, not man. And then you have Arianism, which is the other side of it where they say that Jesus was fully man, but he was not fully God. Um, and that's the one where famously Santa Claus punched the guy in the face at the Council of Nicaea. Uh, if you don't know that story, it's great. St. Nicholas, the real St. Nicholas, got up out of his seat and punched a guy in the face at a council for denying the deity of Christ. So, you know, next time people say Santa's, you know, not a part of real Christmas, hey, listen, <laughs> let me tell you, let me tell you who defended Jesus with his, with his fists, with a, a fury. St. Nicholas. So there you go. Yep. And also a lot of the quote unquote gospels that we have that aren't in the Bible, they're Gnostic gospels. So they're written by this. So that would be like the gospel of Thomas, the gospel of Judas or the two big ones. Um, I always tell people, cause I had someone ask once, like, how do we know those gospels aren't like the real ones and the ones we have are fake. And my answer is always like, just read them. Like if you, if you read them, you're going to be like, oh yeah, this is like, <clears throat> this has nothing to do with the rest of the new Testament and is clearly just like way off on its own philosophy doing stuff. So yeah, it's, it, if you're curious, give it a read. It's crazy. There's a section where Jesus turns Mary Magdalene into a man. It's, 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 wacky. it's wacky. It's out there. Uh, and then Paul finally ends 
this chapter, chapter 15, with this thought. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and the mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the moral and the mortal puts on immortality then shall come to pass the saying when it, that is written death is swallowed up in victory o death where is your victory o death where is your sting the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law but thanks be to god who gives us victory through our lord jesus christ therefore my beloved brothers be steadfast immovable and always abounding in the work of the lord knowing that in the lord your labor is not in vain so Great reminder there from Paul. That was kind of a long one, listeners. Sorry about that. I guess it's, it's you know, the epistles are really dense. It's <laughs> so very it's, true. It's going to take a while. Uh, just wait till we get to what Aaron has to talk about today. <laughs> Speaking of really dense uh, epistles. And when I say dense, I don't mean in a bad way. It's just packed with yes, truth is the way they yes. are. Uh, but before we get to Aaron's section... We do want to take a moment to remind you to leave us a five-star review if you haven't yet. Uh, whatever podcast app that you're listening on, but particularly Spotify and Apple Podcasts, those are the ones that kind of help us out the most. Uh, and on Apple Podcasts, you can leave a written review. And if you do that, we'll read it on the air and give you a shout out just because, you know, it's the kind of guys we are. Because we, we care. We like to give our listeners a shout out. Uh, so Aaron, why don't you wrap up Corinthians and tell yes. us what's coming up next? Yeah, so we hit the end of Corinthians in my portion of the reading as we wrap up, or I guess halfway through the week, uh, I guess a little over half, but... We hit 1 Corinthians 16, where this is the ending of a letter. So I really, like when it comes to Paul's letters, I, I view the majority of Paul's letters as he's wrapping up the book. It really is the previous chapter to the last chapter. So in this case, chapter 15 is more that like final piece. It's uh, a modern day comparison is when a pastor says they're going to start landing the plane or whatever, like they never in conclusion. Uh, it's the real final in conclusion that that is kind of where Paul's wrapping it up. Um, I will say this when in verse 56 of, of chapter 15, I've not picked this up before, but when Paul says the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, he that's a lot of what he's uh, extrapolating and diving into in the book of Romans, which is we're going to hit today as well and start that book. Uh, but chapter 16 specifically is the official end of the letter. Uh, Paul provides some instructions uh, to the, the church at Corinth to the, the first of uh, every week to set something aside. In essence, what he's referring to is he's going to, uh, when someone shows up, they're meant to give them an offering, send them on their way to help provide for the brothers and sisters in Christ, specifically in Jerusalem. But it goes back to the launch of the church where they had everything in common and they're, they're trying to help provide for the needs of each other. So that's what Paul's saying here. Don't forget to set something aside at the beginning of every week. Someone will be along to carry that, pick it up and carry it away. Uh, he then talk after this, he talks about his plans and his desire to come be with them. Uh, but there's ministry that takes priority is in essence what he's saying. I will if God wills, but there's things that I have to do first. He says that a, a wide and effective door for ministry is open for me. And so he wants to be faithful with the opportunities, but he's telling them, I intend to come. I have plans to come. I desire to come and be with you again. And so that's what he's communicating. He then also communicates about Timothy. Uh, and says, if Timothy comes, that really is the illusion. Like, it's really the implication. Timothy will come eventually. Uh, and they, he just ch ch tells the Corinthian church, accept him. He's on my authority. Uh, don't let him be concerned about anything. Uh, and it's not just like, I, I know in 1 Timothy, we get the the line, like, don't any let anyone look down on you because you're young. 
there is some of that reservation just in Timothy in general to be someone who has to be encouraged and reminded of his authority. Uh, but he's telling the Corinthians ahead of time before Timothy shows up to honor him, to care for him, to provide for him. And when it's time for him to leave, to send him away full and and well-resourced to continue the missionary work that he's called to. Uh, and then he explains Apollos' inability. Remember, Apollos was a guy that Paul had met and then was actually instrumental in setting up the church in Corinth and launching that church and leading the church. Uh, and he was explaining that Apollos is not able to be with them right now. And it's, it says that he, Paul says that he's unwilling. It's not necessarily that he's just like, nope, don't want to go there anymore. It's a matter of the work that he's doing. He's unwilling to give up the church that he's developing, the ministry that he's doing to head back to Corinth because Corinth is already an established church and, and is able to kind of be sustained without him being there. Uh, so that's part of the communication that he has, just communicating plans, giving updates, uh, and then extend, extending authority to Timothy and Apollos. And then he f- gives like a final exhortation uh, before his final g- conclusion. His conclusions typically uh, follow a greetings from so-and-so greet the brothers, greet so-and-so, so-and-so greet you. I've written this with my hand. It kind of carries out. So we get that at the end of this chapter. But before that, it's his like last little bit. It's his last little hits. And his exhortations in verses 13 to 18, he says, be alert, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. Brothers and sisters, you know the household of Stephanas. They are the first fruits of Achaia and have devoted themselves to serving the saints. I urge you also to submit to such people and to everyone who works and labors with them. I am delighted to have Stephanas, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, Achaicus present because these men have made up for your absence for they have refreshed my spirit and yours therefore recognize such people it's just really good you just see these little hits of just reminders of exhortations but also urge you to serve and be with people who labor uh, and give freely for the kingdom he then concludes the letters i've already referred to uh, and then we shift over into the book of acts where we're uh, introduced to a a riot that happens in ephesus uh, in essence, what's happening is they're silversmiths who make idols, which that's what their business is off of. People are getting converted in Ephesus to Christianity, which is goes against idol worshiping. All of a sudden, that means that their business is tanking. So they're annoyed. They're frustrated. Demetrius is like the leader of the guy, gives into this mob mentality, drags Gaius and Aristarchus, who are Paul's companions, into the amphitheater. Uh, I did read this amphitheater could seat about 24,000 people. Wow, that's a big and one. it was it was pretty full and like a riot was ensuing, but it was conf- it was like a mob happening. Riot's the wrong word, but a, a mob was formed. And I love that it says in, in the book of Acts here that they some of the people they just it was all confusing because they didn't really know what they were doing. And that's like that's pretty much a mob. They have no idea half the time of why they're rioting or why they're protesting, whatever the case is. But that's what's going on. And then we have this moment where uh, it, it says for two hours, they chanted greatest Artemis of the Ephesians. Artemis was the God that the silversmiths would make idols of. Artemis was one of the, the gods that they would worship in Ephesus. There was a temple and a shrine built for him. Uh, and so there's this, this mob riot craziness happening. Uh, and the city clerk shows up and finally gets them to calm down, provides a bit of order refers Demetrius and the others who have issues to take this up in courts because the court is in session, saying they're already on the verge of, of being in trouble because they're uh, on the verge of a riot. The Roman government's not going to like it. The Corinthian government, it's not going to like it. And they'll shut us down and punish us. Uh, so he says, calm down, take it to the court if you have issues, and then dismisses the crowd. They finally disperse. And then 
we get to chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, where it is the wrap-up of the riot. Paul then takes the disciples together and encourages them. And in this moment, it really is this. He's strengthening. He's building them up. He's encouraging them and telling them. Uh, my perspective would be he's he's just saying, hey, this is going to happen, but God is faithful. God's good. Keep it up. Don't worry. Uh, don't let this discourage you or dissuade you from continuing to follow Christ and do everything God's called us to do. So he does all of this, encourages the disciples, and he's like, hey, I'm heading to Macedonia, by the way. May the odds be ever in your favor. No, not he doesn't really say that. But he he encourages them, says goodbye, and then heads to Macedonia. And then we find details of the places he's going. He's continuing to preach the gospel. He heads to Philippi. And then Luke, no, no not Luke, sorry. Um, and then they meet up in Troas with some of the other believers and followers with uh, with Paul there, which is then we shift into the book of Romans. And uh, a quick overview. I, I will say this as a disclaimer. I'm going to be honest with you. We don't have time to do this book justice in this podcast. Uh, we have, there are previous podcasts in our library, though, where we've done a much deeper dive into the book of Romans. Um, and I would encourage you as you're reading through it, if you need to, you should definitely go back and check those out. We'll pro- I mean, we could probably link the the previous episodes in the podcast, but they're pretty much titled Romans. Yeah, if you start, look up Romans, it'll be there. So it, it, it really is um, one of the densest and richest theological expositions by Paul and of all of our New Testament literature. Uh, it's a phenomenal book, and it's probably one of my favorites. There's going to be chunks towards the end of, of this week's reading in this episode where I'm just going to read chunks of scripture um, because it's so rich and so dense. But Paul really is trying to set up a, he didn't do this intentionally where he's like, I'm going to write a systematic theology of, of the gospel. No, he's breaking down the gospel to a Jewish audience in Rome because his desire is to go to Rome. And it's to house churches. So he's writing this theological and pastoral letter to these house churches where he focuses on the doctrine of salvation. Uh, and with that includes practical implications and what it means for each believer to live out this salvation that's given to them in Christ. Um, I do appreciate one of the notes in my study Bible was that 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5 carries actually a pretty solid outline of the gospel. And I love looking at it from the viewpoint of Romans is going to fill in all of the details of that outline. Uh, and it's going to draw in Old Testament promises and the Mosaic law, the role of good works uh, and God's gift of righteousness and those things. But the challenge is it's a very dense and Paul writes in such a way that is is so crazy to keep up with. But it's really incredible. And so I would encourage you two things as you're reading the book of Romans this week, starting the book of Romans this week, to read it a little slower. And when you catch yourself drifting mentally to stop, refocus and re-engage and really work to understand. I love that we get to read it in kind of one big chunk because we're going to see Paul's argument in drawing the gospel throughout all of Jewish history about all of the Jewish arguments and drawing them to a point of understanding they are saved by faith alone. The gospel is, is enough and it redeems and restores and transforms lives. And so that's kind of what Paul's going to hit. Uh, in chapter one, we get his introduction, which is typical of a Pauline letter. He explains in, in verses eight through 15, his desire to visit Rome, which is true. And he, he he says these things very intentionally because he cares deeply for the community of believers in Rome. Uh, in chapter one, verse 16, we get probably one of the most famous passages um, in, in the Christian worldview, where it's this picture of, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because of the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes first to the Jew and then also to the Greek. 
So even in this moment, you see him drawing and setting a stage for the power of the gospel. And it's it's salvation for everyone who believes. And the first extension of this was to the Jews, but then in turn came to the Greeks as well. Because in essence, spoiler, like the Jews rejected it. And we know that through the gospels. But Paul is writing to a Jewish audience in Rome and drawing them into this tension and conclusion about the gospels for everyone. Uh, and I just love Paul's passion and boldness for the gospel here. Um, he talks about the righteous will live by faith, which means he's coming directly at their works-based mentality of where they will uh, do everything they can to to earn or, or live righteously, but it's by faith alone that we're righteous. Um, he talks about the guilt of the world of sin, specifically Gentiles, where the Gentiles worship created things rather than the creator, which then in turn led from idolatry to, to depravity. Well, in other words, that they were, because they were worshiping created things rather than the creator, they were handed then over to their evil ways, their lusts, their pride, their selfish way of living uh, to the point where in verse 32 of chapter one, it says, although they know God's just sentence, that is those who practice such things deserve to die. They not, and they not only do them, but they even applaud others who practice them, which is a really low, low point. Like this is where you see human depravity at its fullest, where they're not, they don't, don't just understand God's consequences, God's punishment for sin. They understand that they still practice these evil ways. And then they're even celebrating others who are practicing them as well, which if that's not a, uh, uh, an indication and a challenge for our culture today, I don't know what is. Uh, but that's that's the framework Paul is saying. These Gentiles reject the idea of God, worship the created things. Idolatry leads to depravity. Depravity finds its full, fullness, full fullness in the fact that even though they know that God's wrath is being poured out on all those who sin and reject the truth and live uh, unrighteously, they still do them and they still and they applaud those who are doing them as well. That's the pinnacle of depravity that Paul is talking about. In chapter two, he'll then shift his focus to the Jewish people group now, uh, and he calls he calls out the judgment with with, the, with which they judge, uh, and in turn are judging and condemning themselves. He says God doesn't show favoritism. I remember writing in my Bible this last week, praise God for that. Amen to that because that's true. And we know that in James, but it's a very true statement to hold on to. If we're followers of Christ, we need to follow God's heart. God doesn't show favoritism between Jew or Greek. Paul takes uh, on the explanation of this law, focusing on how the Jews have violated the law where they claim to be leaders. So he just talks about this idea of them being, you You claim to lead, you claim to to. To, to be a guide to the blind. And then he says, the very things you say not to do, you do. You say, don't steal, but are you a thief? You say, don't commit adultery, but are you are you adult being an adulterer? Uh, and so he's calling them out by the very, like you're, in essence, it's you're saying don't do these things, but you yourselves are doing them. Paul's calling out the Jews in that audience. He's saying, you're doing these things, therefore you're violating the law with which you're supposed to stand firm and, and uphold. He then explains a real intent and he talks about circumcision, which is a, a, a prideful chip on the shoulder. Uh, like it's a prideful badge that the Jewish uh, audience would be wearing. Well, we're circumcised, you're not. We're God's people, you're not. Uh, but then he explains the reality of circumcision. It actually was not a physical act that makes them righteous, but it was spiritual. It was a circumcision of the heart, which is where he kind of ends the chapter two, where he hits this idea circumcision was meant to be a heart issue, not a physical act. Uh, the physical act reflected a heart responding in obedience, which we'll get to that in a, in a little bit, talking through Abraham. 
In chapter three, we're actually going to see he takes a moment, much like he does in all the epistles, and he'll even do continue doing Romans, where he is getting reports about a community of believers, and they receive questions or conversations or issues back, much like Corinthians, where he was responding to all of the dysfunction. So he was thwarting that. So he does that in Romans here in chapter three, where he gets this objection uh, about the benefit of being a Jew. Uh, and well, what's the benefit then? Why, why, why should I even value being a Jew? And and in essence, Paul draws back to the fact that hey, God chose the Jewish people to give them and entrust His word to them, uh, and that's valid enough to be able to have a high value and a high focus on what it means to be God's people in the Jewish world uh, and the Jewish population. Uh, but he also is clear to say, but this doesn't make him better. And this is where we get Romans three twenty three says, "All have fallen short of the glory of God." But in essence, draws a very clear line and says, hey, as a Jew, you were entrusted with the truth and the hope of the Messiah, the hope of the gospel. We have the truth. We were entrusted with God's word, but it doesn't make you better. And, and I think that's something that's really challenging for us today, too. Like we can live with enlightened understanding about how our lives should live in, in light of eternity, how we should be living our lives where our hope comes from eternity and the gospel, but it doesn't make us better than those around us. Those who are not living in a righteous mentality, those who are not living in in in, in a God-honoring or those who are not living in a God-honoring does not mean those of us who claim to be Christians or live righteously are better than them. It actually means we just understand things better to where we can hopefully love and care for them well. It should evoke a response of love, even as we kind of wrapped up 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and in that capacity as well. So he's talking about the benefits of it, but he's also talking about the responsibilities of it, uh, being a Jew, the benefit of it and the, and the responsibility. All of us are under the weight of sin and its consequences. He explains the law's work was to reveal our sinfulness and also point out our inability even as he is doing right now to recover and redeem our, ourselves. In other words, he's, we take, there's, there's celebratory truth and things that are held to in regards to understanding righteousness and standards. Um, and, and he's saying you, the law is, was meant to expose our brokenness, our sinfulness, and also point out our inability to be able to redeem ourselves and that we are all righteous because of Christ, nothing more, nothing less. Our works are to be a reflection of, not a mentality of I'm going to earn this righteousness. Um, and and he, he makes this statement, we uphold the law because of our righteousness in Christ. Um, and th- in essence, he talks about the motivation for why we live righteously matters. And that's important to it. Uh, he then shifts into chapter four and starts using the example of Abraham to reinforce this truth, where he says that, his, that Abraham's faith was the source of his obedience in life. Um, He uses David's Psalm of Psalm 32 to show that even David had this truth understood and he tried to live by it. And he, so he quotes a a Psalm and then after he he highlights David for a moment, he shifts back to Abraham and where he talked about Abraham's faith occurred before he was circumcised, Uh, that the act of circumcision, which is where the Jewish uh, audience would put their pride and their boast in actually came after his faith and was a, a byproduct of his faith. That obedience of getting circumcised as a covenant, as a sign of the covenant of, of promise between God and Abraham came after Abraham trusted him. After Abraham took a step of faith and, and trusted God for his promises. Uh, and it says that Adam, Abraham received the promise because of his faith, not because of his work, uh, but his works is what proved his faith. 
And we get this in chapter four, verse 19 to 25. It says, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body to be already dead since he was about a hundred years old and also the deadness of Sarah's womb. So he's talking about the promise with which Abraham clung to was the fact that he would have a son with which God would make him the father of many nations. So they would be a blessing to the world uh, as in the future generations. Uh, Verse 20 says, he did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. Because he was fully convinced that what God had promised he was able to do, therefore it was credited to him as righteousness. Now it was credited to him was not written for Abraham alone, but also for us. It will be credited to those of us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So he, he takes the faith of Abraham away from circumcision and places it on the promise that Abraham clinged to because he believed God would do what he would say he would do. And he's making this point very clearly because what he's trying to do systematically is deconstruct the faith of the of the Jewish people and reconstruct it back on Christ to then show the fulfillment of obedience and faith. And that's what justifies is the faith that leads is shown through obedience. So he's breaking it down to rebuild it back up. And we get to chapter five where he takes the next step. And he makes this statement at the very beginning of the chapter. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into his grace in which we stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And he's saying, because our, our, our because of Abraham's righteousness credit to him is faith, you and I follow the same vein. We're included in the same promise. And we are justified by faith, not by our acts, not by our circumcision. Um, and in essence, he's saying we're justified because of Christ and our faith in Christ in turn is what brings reconciliation with God. He then dives into this. Paul will then dive into the truth of uh, of the sin entering through one man, which was Adam, and then also Christ being human to bring life to humanity. So he shows this compare and contrast between Adam, who's the first man, and Christ, who's the, the first man. Uh, the, the fulfillment of the, the the intent of God's creation of humanity. Christ came down as a full man to redeem humanity. So he creates this compare and contrast talking about our justification in faith. Chapter six uh, is, is he takes another step where he talks about our new life in Christ. We're no longer a slave to sin, but we're a slave to God. I'm going to read the first 11 verses because I think this is, again, some of the most profound, challenging thoughts. It says this, it says, what should we say then? Should we continue to sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died into sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will also certainly be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know... That our old self was crucified with him so that nobody, so the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved by sin. Since a person has died, is freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. And he paints this clear picture about grace abounding. We're dead to sin. That's no longer continue to live in sin. And he continues in chapter six and says, therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Don't let it have any space. So you don't obey its desires. 
Uh, and in essence, he's painting the picture saying you are a slave to what or who you obey. It's sin or righteousness. There's no other option. And what and we can find what we're a slave to based upon what we do. And so he's challenging us to be remembered our, our sin, our, our flesh has died with Christ. We now have life because of Christ. Uh, and in chapter seven, he uses marriage as an illustration to make this point. Where in essence, he's saying their marriage covenant is what holds a husband and wife together while they're alive. But if one dies, their covenant no longer exists. And he's bringing that into the the, a post-Christ era where it's no longer about the law because in essence, we have died to the law and we are alive with Christ. And so it's no longer we live to the standard of the law. We live to a standard of Christ, who, by the way, is the fulfillment of the law. And it says our standard is now to be Christ. Christ is the one we are now a slave to. We're no longer a slave to the law. Uh, and he talks about it. He does, what he's saying is that the law is not discredited. It will continues in chapter seven, but the law's purpose was to expose the impact and reality of sin in all of us so that we may freely live, live from it in Christ. So we don't have to be held by the law and by a works-based righteousness or by a standard that we can not uphold because of the brokenness of sin, because that's what the law did. It exposed sin's motives and everything we do. Um, and then he brings this revelation of, of sin, uh, the problem of sin in all of this. It's arguably one of the most relatable passages. Uh, and this is, I told you, I'm going to read a chunk of, of Romans at the end here. Uh, but this is one, of, like I said, one of the most relatable passages. Romans chapter seven, verse 14 to 25 says this, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold as a slave to sin. For I do not understand what I am doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So I, now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. He's not giving himself an excuse. He's not saying, well, it's not my fault. It's sin's fault. He's, he's bringing revelation to the motive and the reality behind it, which should then draw us to a point of humility and confession to say, Jesus, I need you to change my life, to bring freedom from this sin that is alive in me so that I can do what I, I know I need to do, what I want to do, because I'm not doing what I want to do. It says in verse 18, for I know that nothing good lives in me, that is in my flesh, for the desire to do what is good is with me, but there's no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to. Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one that does it, but it is the sin that lives in me. So I discover this law at work. When I want to do what is good, evil is present within me. For in my inner self, I delight in God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body waging war against the law of my mind and the taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. And then he has this, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And he doesn't stop there. And this is what I love. You see this war at work that is very relatable for all of us humans today is that we, we at times, especially for those of us who are in Christ, understand the right thing, the good thing, the righteous thing to do in comparison to the challenge of the things that I don't want to do. And it, he, Paul comes to this full transparent observation revelation saying, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this? And he says this in verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself am serving the law with God, but my, with my flesh, the law of sin. He's referring to the fact that I have Christ who is the redeemer who is the fulfiller and who is the savior of my life. And I can live in a way that honors God and rejects sin 
because of what Christ has done. And I just, I love that he comes to that point. And then we get to chapter eight and we're reading the first 17 verses. And as I was, I was trying to break this down and trying to work through it. I'm just like, man, there's just so many things in this, in these verses that uh, I just think are, are worth just taking time to read it because coming out of his revelation and his hum, human moment, he's saying, man, thanks be to God. What a wretch am I, but thanks be to God. And he says this, therefore, go back to everything that you just said. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So he's referring back to and continuing the thought of who's going to save me. Thanks be to God in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. The law of the spirit of life in Christ has set me free and, and from the law of sin and death. He says in verse three, what the, what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit have their minds set on the things of the spirit. Now the mind of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. And he just goes on to list, this is what the mind that is of the flesh is. It's hostile to God, but the law that is of the spirit is at peace with God. And he draws this conclusion and draws us to a point. And I wish we could finish chapter eight this week, but we actually start next week with chapter eight, the rest of chapter eight. But I love at the end here, he says, uh, for in verse 14, for all those led by God's spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And I'm going to end there because I think it's a really powerful moment where Paul is drawing the Jewish audience and the Roman churches to the conclusion and the reality of adoption into God's family allows us access to God as father, that he's not a, a judge sitting up there with the gavel depending and, and judging our works, but that it's he's, he's a father who has included us in his family so that we can live righteously from belonging to God's family. And that's a really cool, challenging thought to end the week with. There you go. Well, we'll finish Romans next week, but right now we're going to talk about what we learned today. For me this week, it comes down to, I mean, there's it's hard when you're in the epistles because there's so many things that you can apply because uh, it's pretty much what they are. They're practical applications of the gospel. But the one that stood out to me is this idea of desiring spiritual gifts, but for the right reason. Uh, and I, it, I think it stands out to me because I was just having this conversation with someone a couple of weeks ago. Like, well, is it right to desire things? Like, I'm kind of like, I, I wish I was able to do more, all these different things. And, and the answer there would be like, yeah, the Bible tells us, scripture tells us it's not a bad thing to desire to use the gifts, but why are we doing it? So is it because like, oh, this would be really cool, this would be fun, or is it more of like, I want to build up the church, I want to see people come to know Christ. And so I think it's a good thing to work into our prayers, God, I want to work in whatever gifts you have for me, I want to be as effective as I can be in ministry. And by ministry, I don't mean vocational, this is my job. All of us as Christians are called to ministry. Uh, and so asking the Holy Spirit to empower us to do ministry as effectively as we can, to share the gospel as well as we can, and, and to work in the spiritual gifts for for God's glory is not a bad thing. So I thought that was a really good a really good application for us today of things that we can be praying for. Yeah, that's really good. Uh, and for me, I think it comes down to, uh, as Paul is really building this case, um, you know, and we've we've got about halfway through the book of Romans this week, which is crazy to think about because it's so, so, so dense. Um, 
I just love the fact that what Paul is challenging and reminding us today, but even the Jewish audience back then, uh, is that where where we live from is not this workspace perspective where I have to earn salvation, but it's this adoption reality where I can live in the freedom because I'm included in God's family because of the work of Jesus. And this is one of the most challenging truths for us today because we live in performance-based culture. We live in, we have to do this to earn this. We have to do this to earn a raise. We have to do this to earn a grade. We have to do this to earn acceptance and belonging. But in the kingdom, it's, it's backwards. We've been accepted. We belong. So we live in the freedom of belonging and of it being accepted, where we can walk in the righteousness because Christ has made us righteous. And that's what Paul is getting at. That was what Paul lived from. He was a persecutor of the church. He was a an imprisoner of Christians. He was even approving of some the murder of Christians. But he lived in the hope and in the in the truth once he encountered Christ that he belonged to the family of God and he lived in the freedom of of that, which is where he's making the statements he's making. And he can say the things he said, even in first Corinthians about, uh, do it, everything's permissible, but not everything's beneficial. He can say that th- I do everything possible, become all things to all men so that all might become saved because he understands I'm, I'm, I'm part of God's family. I want others to belong and live in the freedom of that truth too. So I think it's a really powerful thought and really powerful lifetime journey that we are, are all, <laughs> excuse me, all on that I think is really important to remember this week. All right. Well, last thing today, we did have a question come in. So we're going to go ahead and answer that. Okay. We're only doing one this week because this won't take a little bit to answer. So here it goes. It says, as I've been going through the gospels, I am struck by some of the stark differences between the two testaments. Turning the page from Malachi, it seems as though the topics of demon possession, eternal life, and eternal punishment have gone from non-existent to commonplace. When Jesus talks about these things, everyone seems to know what he is talking about. Did I just miss it in the Old Testament? I'm particularly interested in cleaning up my understanding of eternal punishment. If that helps, thanks for looking into this. Okay. So... I mean, this is a great, this is a great point. So a couple of things to remember, uh, think about 400 years, how long that is, how much culture can change and, and everything that happened in between. So when we're reading the Bible, when we read from, and, and when we're reading as far as things that are recorded that we have, and so we have good cultural ideas, we're reading essentially from the time of Moses to the time of the return from the Jews in exile. So it's a period of a, a, a good chunk of centuries is going on in that in that period. And we see culture change over the time as we read those, but we're seeing that gradually in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's a shock because we're going from 400 years if essentially that goes by, we don't get any of the context of it. And then we're boom, we're in a new cultural context. So that's a big part of it. Uh, there were massive cultural changes that happened between the Old and the New Testament. Particularly, you have the Hellenization of uh, the Middle East. And what that means is Greek culture kind of permeating everywhere. You have the Roman Empire. You have the moment where the Maccabees uh, take over for about a century and Israel is once again independent and then it's subjugated once again by Rome. So all these things are going on. So I think that's the first thing. Uh, so as far as the different topics that come up, so the, we'll just go and kind of go to- topic by topic. Uh, demon possession or demons in general. You're right. These aren't really mentioned all that much in the Old Covenant, in the in the Old Testament. I think part of that is the shift to monotheism for the Jews. And what I mean by that is if you if you read through the Old Testament, the Jews are not monotheistic for very long at any given point. Uh, they're supposed to be. That is always the command from God. But when you read through, 
you know, Kings and Chronicles, what you're going to see is the people of Israel constantly worshiping other gods. And, and that's what's happening. Uh, I think that a lot of what is termed demons in the New Testament are called false gods in the Old Testament. Uh, I think that some of the miraculous things that we see are, it's it's demonic that it's happening. I think some of the uh, enemies we see, it's, it's, it's demon possession in that sense as well. Uh, so I don't think it's absent. I think it's referred to other things. And then once you see the Jews really devote themselves to Yahweh alone, which it kind of happens in the post-exilic period, and definitely by the time we get to uh, the period of Christ, those who still call themselves Jews are very – the the struggle does not seem to be with idolatry. And so I think in that moment, you're just getting different language for what those things actually are. Um, again, th- sorry, this is all pretty open-handed. Totally. Yeah. yeah. So that's just kind of – that's the way I would read it. I think there is demonic activity in the Old Testament. Uh, it's It's usually just under the name of false gods there. Uh, for eternal life, so it's talking about why is why is there so much of a focus on eternal life as opposed to um, which we don't see in the Old Testament? Uh, it's because the covenants are different. So, and this is where I think we've done a bad job as the church of teaching people about really what like what was the Old Covenant? Shots fired, bro. Yeah, uh, most of the Old Covenant is very much concerned with the material world right now. So it's, if you do this, you will be blessed in this land. If you do this, you will be blessed with long life. You know, it's kind of a long list of things like that. Um, the old covenant is not necessarily concerned with the eternal as much. What what God is doing is he's creating his people in the land and he's telling them, I, I will protect you. I will be with you as long as you do these things. So we, we kind of read some new, some new covenant ideas into the old covenant when that's not necessarily what God was doing. Um, all that to be say, said, there there is an idea of eternal life or of spiritual life beyond this world. So that's not absent in the old covenant. It's just that it's not necessarily addressed nearly as much. And and that and that's why when we get to the New Testament, they talk about how they have faith <laughs> that God is going to that God's going to do something. Yeah. They don't know exactly what's going to be, uh, but they have faith that God is going to be with them. Uh, particularly, I think of Job. There's a a bunch of times where he imagines that he will, um that after he dies, he will stand before God or he'll be able to defend. So clearly there's something in his mind that is saying like, there's there's a life after death that's happening, but it's, yeah, it's just not addressed because the old covenant isn't super concerned with that. Uh, and it also helps to explain why the kingdom of heaven being a spiritual thing that Jesus is ushering in was such a stumbling block to so many, because if they're operating under the old covenant, that's not really the concern of what's going on. Uh, but it, it becomes one. Uh, finally, we talked about how uh, I'm particularly interested in cleaning up my understanding of eternal punishment. Uh, me too. <laughs> so like, <laughs> this is full disclosure. Oh man. Uh, this is the most open-handed thing I guess I'll say, but I think there's two understandings of hell and eternal punishment that you can uh that you can read into scripture, or I shouldn't say read into, that's the wrong way of saying it, but that you can read scripture and come away with believing. Uh, And those would be the eternal conscious punishment. And I would say in the American church, that's kind of the main one that we believe, right? It's that uh, all souls are immortal and that those souls which are sent to hell are eternally consciously uh, punished for for eternity, I already said eternally. Um, the second one would be a form of annihilationism, which means that at some point, whether it be instantly or whether it be after a period of punishment, um, God chooses to 
annihilate. And what, what that means is uh, the soul will cease to exist. Or in other words, you're, you're killed, not in the physical sense of what we mean by like death in this world, but in the sense of uh, your spirit is, is, is gone, I guess is the way that I would phrase it. Um, I think you can be a Christian and believe both of these things. And so I, and I say this with, I, I don't know which one I believe because I've been looking into this for a long time. Uh, it's funny because I kind of just, my, my hope is that I, I'm not going to have to worry about it. You know what I mean? So it's, <laughs> it's kind of, it's on the back burner a little bit. I kind of, it's kind of like the way I do um, with end times and eschatology and everything like that. Like I'm not as concerned with like what's going to happen. Cause I kind of just trust God. Like Jesus is going to return. There's going to be a new heaven and new earth. It's going to be awesome. The details, I'll let him figure all that out. Um, but all, all of that to say, I think that the American church for a long time has kind of painted that the eternal conscious punishment is the only way to interpret scripture. I don't think that's true. And when you look at a lot of the early church fathers, which are not infallible, so this isn't meant to be as like other scripture or anything, but there is something to be said where a lot of the church fathers, which are people who knew the disciples personally or were in those few generations after that. So they're very early on in the Christian faith that they believed that there was some form of annihilation that would happen. So kind of interesting, super unhelpful answer, because like I said, I, kind of, I, I don't have a definitive spot where I land. Um, and this is something that, and I, I say this as we collectively, because I'm including myself in this, are going to have to kind of look into, look into scripture and see what it is that we believe. Um, but also hopefully if you're listening, this isn't something you have to worry about anyway. So hopefully we're just with, we're with Christ in eternity in the new heaven and new earth. And we're not having to think about what's going on in hell. So there you go. I don't, Aaron, I don't know if you have anything to add there. No, I think you went on, on a, a pretty in-depth conversation. Um, I, I don't know where I stand either. Um, so I, I want to be careful not to say, oh yeah, I believe everything. I, I, I really don't know. I think, um, I do think I would add this about like, why don't we see more demons in the Old Testament or demonic activity? Um, I think it's not as blatant in some respects. I agree with Evan, but I, I also want, would say like Christ shows up in the New Testament and there's a full out war that we are more privy to and That's more aware point. of because it's, I mean, it's this moment where especially after Christ is, is arriving. So the fact that there were so many different encounters that Jesus had reveals that there were so many different moments that would have carried out. They didn't just show up when Christ showed up and say, okay, now we're going to no, like they would have existed throughout. Um, I think there's just a greater explanation of what's going on, but Jesus shows up too. So there's a more blatant attack against the church and against his people. So, um, but as far as like e eternal punishment, I think that's one thing we've got to be, be gracious and humble and trust God in. Um, I don't know. I, he's a good father, but I want, I want, I want everyone to be able to sit in the same seat where I'm, I'm, we are, where we're hopeful right. that we don't have to deal with that. Like we, not deal with it, but we don't have to face that because we have eternal hope in the midst of that. So, um, but that's, a, that, those are deep waters and deep questions. And I love that we are asked those. Um, and Evan does a far better job in eloquently processing those thoughts. So oh, I don't know about that. Uh, but that does wrap it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. As a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of the Grove Church. You can find our other resources on our website, grove.church, under the media tab. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you'd like to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can also do that on the website. There's a give button in the upper right-hand corner. And hey, thank you all so much for listening. Have a great week.